Exodus chapter 19, there is a break, a significant break. It's even there in the grammar and the way that the book is written between chapters 18 and 19. And so it was a natural place for us to take. There's also the arrival at a new spot. So there's a bit of a geographical break. You know Exodus most likely as the book where they begin in slavery and then they're led out into freedom. And all of the amazing plagues and all of the mighty works of God that have taken place. And then they arrive at Mount Sinai and we really enter a new stage. And from here, God who has called and redeemed his people is now going to begin to form his people. What we get to today in chapter 19 will be the precursor of the giving of the law, which will carry them forward in learning how do we live with this holy and awesome and amazing God who has done all these incredible things and yet know him as Savior, know him intimately, and even more than that, walk with him and let him make us his witnesses as a nation to all the earth. So that's where we come to today. Exodus 19, we're just going to, because so much is going on, take the first few verses for today to launch us off as we'll continue forward. Read with me, Exodus 19, starting in verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. And there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Pause there. First, notice there is, even in this transitional moment, a journey complete and a promise fulfilled. A journey complete and a promise fulfilled. This is uh, Yahweh keeping his word, and we would miss it, likely, if we just read over it quickly. It says here in verse 2, the end of verse 2, that they camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Hmm, that's interesting. It just says the mountain. Question, has Moses ever been here before? Answer, absolutely. He has. This is the site where the Lord revealed himself to him and first called him in the burning bush. And, and what did Yahweh tell Moses as he was just a shepherd there, living amongst the Midianites, you know, providing for his family, taking care of sheep, wandering with them in the wilderness, and saw there somewhere near this mountain and then went up onto it, this bush that burned but didn't disintegrate. God then called to him, and what did he say? I want you to go back quickly with me to chapter 3 of Exodus. Just flip a little bit, and we'll just read starting in verse 8, Exodus 3, 8, Yahweh says, So I have come down to deliver my people. I'm inserting my people because he's already mentioned that. I've come down to deliver my people from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Now behold, 
The cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Okay, this is huge. God steps again into time and space and reveals himself to Moses. And he's going to tell Moses, hey, here's what I'm going to do. And oh, yeah, by the way, you're the one who's going to do it. And I'm going to do it through you to lead, I don't know, one or two million-ish slaves out of the clutches of one of the most powerful empires that has ever ruled on the face of the earth. Um, I mean, Moses is probably thinking at this point, yeah, okay, you know, you, me, and what army? <laughs> and the Lord says, yeah, no, just you and me, because I'm the army. And so certain is God of what he's going to do, that he tells Moses ahead of time. And by the way, I'm just going to give you a little something to look forward to, to encourage you along the way, a signpost. Drop down to verse 12 of Exodus 3. And the Lord said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall what? Worship God at this mountain. So Mount Horeb, as it is called in Exodus 3.1, the place of the burning bush, later will be called here Mount Sinai, the very place God says, and by the way, I'm going to do all this, and after everybody comes out, you can come back to this spot. So imagine what it's been like for Moses in this intervening period of time. I'm looking for that day. I'll know God will confirm. Not as though he doesn't know that God is at, isn't at work already in his mighty power in all of this. But, but pause and consider, by the way, how did the nation get to the mountain? Well, after all the plagues, right, and then there was the Reed Sea thing, and then they come out on the other side, and they sing, and then Moses stands up, and he goes, guys, hey, I know where we're supposed to go next, right? Let's go. Follow me. That's what Moses does, right? No, because you know, since chapter 13, how have they been traveling? The pillar cloud by day and the pillar fire by night has been leading them. I wonder if along the way Moses has maybe thought, I, I think I know where we're going. I, it's like right over that way, Lord. We could just, I, let's, this is, you said, in fact, you promised. Nope. That's not Moses' job, is it? It's to lead the people as the Lord leads him. And there is already just within that a little bit of a lesson for us, right? How does God lead you, and where does God lead you? Have you ever even had those seasons in your life where you felt like, you know, I think I know where God is going. It's like right over there, Lord. Come on, everybody, follow me. And the Lord said, nope, I know exactly where we're going, and I know exactly when we'll get there. And along the way, I have a number of other things that you know nothing about, but I have purpose for each and every stage of the journey. Really, the, the Exodus um, movement is, uh, is three big chunks. There's, there's all the stuff in Egypt, right, and it culminates with all the plagues. And then there's the, the traveling out, like, through the Red Sea and, and all of that. And then we kind of think, boom, then Sinai. But there's about two or three-ish chapters in there, about 15 to 17, that is the the first wilderness wanderings, 
And what God is doing, especially in chapter 16 and 17, where it just says the Israelites grumble and then they grumble and then they grumble and then they grumble again. I think it's four different scenes is, is God is teaching them and he's training them. Now you follow me at my speed and my way. Yeah, we're going to get to the mountain, but all in good time. I have some things to share with you along the way, the Lord says. And so since chapter 13, they've been following. They've just been following the, the pillar cloud, the pillar of fire. And so finally, then we get here to chapter 19. And wouldn't you know it, they end up exactly where God promised. And so when it says in verse 2, had we not had that background, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain, we would think, well, what mountain? They camped in front of a mountain. You haven't told us which mountain it is. Yes, I have. Notice Moses' response in three. Moses went up to God. Imagine the excitement of Moses as he sees the pillar cloud out in front of the camp of the people heading toward the mountain. And he thinks, I know this place. This is where God met with me and talked with me. There's already been some severe challenges for the people in getting here. But the Lord had a purpose in every one of them. Now is the thrill of having by sight what before was only for Moses by faith. And this will be a sign to you that after I have delivered my people, they will worship me on this mountain. Probably such a sweet sight to Moses as he sees the promise fulfilled and at least this stage of the journey complete. Brothers and sisters, you and I one day will see all the promises fulfilled. And it is right for us to remind ourselves of that often and live in light of that day because we are, are not a people who follow a deist God who was like the watchmaker who put everything in place and intricately, you know, micromanaged the details so that he could set it down and walk away and let it run on its own. No, we have a God who is returning one day and is intimately involved in all the details of our lives, leading every stage of the journey. And so we live in light of one day and we live in light of what he's doing every day because that is our God intimately involved. Such a sweet promise fulfilled here for Moses and encouragement to us. If you've trusted in Christ, then you've come to know God as your Savior. And if you've been willing to let him lead you, then how much more sweet will your joy be to look back and say, you know, this didn't <laughs> quite go the path I thought. But I can look back now and I can see what you were teaching us each step of the way. I can see what you were doing with me, for me, in spite of me, helping me. And now that I stand here and my faith is sight, oh, Lord God, how sweet. It truly is such joy. Well, that's really just the introduction. Now we come to what really is a defining passage in the life of the nation of Israel, arguably even in the entire Old Testament. Um, none of the commentators said it in these words, but I don't think that this would be an appropriate way to say it. Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6 are almost the Matthew 28, 18 through 20 of the Old Testament. It's almost the great commission for the nation of Israel because all the rest of the book of Exodus will really flow out of God doing exactly what he says he is commissioning them to do. He is defining them. He is launching them. 
And so this is a, a power-packed and a dense few little verses that will now unfold through the rest of Exodus, and then and really it unfolds through the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and it launches us all the way forward to Christ because the Mosaic Covenant that will be given starting here and through these chapters is what defines the nation and will up until the coming of Christ and the day of the giving of the new covenant. So the Lord having intervened in space and time in awesome ways now comes down to meet with them and formalize this relationship. He does not merely say, you are now my children. Um, I hope you do pretty good at figuring out what it means to have me as a father. He says, no, let me train you. Let me instruct you. Let me guide you. Let me give you wisdom in how to please me. And when you do mess up, and you will, let me give you direction in how to come back to me. So both what he says in these next few verses and the order in which he says them will find will be of critical importance. So he begins first by, by recounting to Moses, and then Moses will recount it to the people, recounting to Moses his deliverance. What we see in verse 4 is the wonderful work of the Lord's deliverance, the wonderful work of the Lord's deliverance. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I want you to notice Yahweh's three works of deliverance. One commentator, I think, said it well. At this point, he's, he's telling Moses and the nation, let me interpret for you what's just happened <laughs> over the last few months and years of your life. Let me explain to you everything that's just gone on. And so there's three works of deliverance here. First, work is a mighty visitation of deliverance, a mighty visitation by an almighty and sovereign God. There it is in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Would you agree that, that the did that Yahweh did was some pretty big didding? It was a mighty visitation of God. What did God did? Well, there were gnats and frogs and flies and locusts. There were boils, and there were dead cattle. There was the blood river, and there was the fire hail. And then there was darkness so thick, it was palpable, it was tangible, you could feel it, and a man could hold out his hand in front of his face and not even sense that it was there. And then there was the most mighty of all the visitations, the death of the firstborn, when the death angel himself came and walked through the streets of the town, and everyone found without the blood over the doorposts would lose their firstborn. It was a mighty visitation. And uh, our brothers here, we preached through those opening 18 chapters with about six or seven or eight of us taking turns in that and so much rich to be re reminded. A mighty visitation. It's what I did to the Egyptians. And then after all of that came the Reed Sea. Remember when they were caught between the rock and the hard place or actually between the wet and the pointy place? Uh, there was a, a sea on one hand, and there was an army on the other. And that mighty pillar came and intervened, protected them from the army on the one hand, and then opened a dry ground path on the other. Mighty visitation. All of that is what he did to the Egyptians. God's glory, we tracked in those opening chapters, his glory was on full display, both in salvation and judgment. And it's the judgment part of his deliverance that's mentioned in this little phrase. You saw what I did 
to the Egyptians. What he did was demonstrating that he was sovereign. Nothing could stop his hand. Many times he said, you will see my hand. We'll do this by my hand. Many, many times. Nothing could stop Yahweh's hand. We saw that Yahweh was victorious. As at one point he even said, I've, I've thrown down all the gods of the Egyptians. I mean, they, they had a God of, of everything. And you go back and you look and you're like, wow, lo and behold, they had a God who was, you know, kind of in charge of the Nile River. They worshipped the Nile. And oh, yeah, he turned it to blood. He turned it to death. They thought it was life. And, and they had a God who was in charge of the night and the day. And oh, he wrecked that. And on and on and on. Defeating their gods, bringing them to a mockery because he said so that they will know that there is a God in Israel. We see his visitation through his mighty purpose and his election. Back in the time when he called Abraham in Genesis 12 from a pagan people, and he says, I will make of you a great nation, and through you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, that nation of people, as it grows up, will end up in slavery down in Egypt. But in Exodus 2, he will, it will say he remembered his covenant, his election, his purpose, and his plan. And so he says, I come now to, to reinstitute, to bring back that program. Not that it ever was off the rails, but you haven't seen it for about 400 years. A mighty visitation at this point. And... And they saw all of this, which is super cool. Go back one more time with me to the end of chapter 14. Uh, this is, uh, this is what, what is recorded for us. After they come out on the other side of the Reed Sea, the water washes back in. And, and what is found on, on the beaches? Answer, bodies. The bodies of soldiers washed up and horses and Smashed chariots, right? Look at 30 and 31 of Exodus 14. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel what? Saw. Saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel what? Saw. The great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In exact fulfillment of what he had said, the the Egyptians will know that there is a God in Israel. Pharaoh will know that Yahweh is God of all the nations. And he says, and as well, you, my people, will know that I am God. And they see, and they know, and they believe. Well, there's a little bit of a picture for us in that. We don't have what is probably the same visible experience of the mighty visitation of God in our salvation, although you may have had such, some of us. But our deliverance comes not so much through the overthrow of some worldly power by the mighty crushing hand of God, bringing blow after blow to teach them that he is God over all things. No, but ours comes through the satisfaction of a supernatural power. And a mighty visitation upon our sin by the wrath of God took place in Christ on the cross. There was a mighty visitation for your salvation and for mine, wasn't there? The wrath of God for all the sin of all mankind for all time was poured out upon the Son of God on the cross. Why? Because he became sin itself, 2 Corinthians 5 says. 
That is, it is a horrifying thought to imagine. And yet it was the most mighty visitation and the most necessary work for us. That was pictured for Israel by his mighty visitation upon the Egyptians. And it was just barely a foreshadow of his mighty visitation for us upon Christ. His second work of deliverance, the wonderful work of the Lord's deliverance, there's a mighty visitation and then there's a full provision. There is a full provision. What does he say next in verse 4? Yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. What a sweet encouragement and what a sweet way to speak of how he has step by step led them by this pillar each part of the way. What a full provision he has given. In fact, uh, even in the midst of the plagues, while, while all heck was breaking loose upon the Egyptians, what were the Israelites experiencing in the land of Goshen, right? Safety, protection. When darkness came, they had light, right? God said, look, I just want to make a distinction between y'all and my people so you know that it isn't just some natural phenomenon. In fact, the Egyptian magician said, surely this is the finger of God when they saw it happen. That was just the beginning of his caring for them every step of the way, even as he was pouring out his mighty visitation. In chapter 16 and 17, as I mentioned, there are four different times that he provides for them meat, manna, water, actually five because he provides water twice. Meat, manna, water twice, and then victory over the Amalekites. Remember Moses standing on the hill with his staff raised? And all five times, the Israelites clearly get the picture. You know, all of this is done to save our lives, to give us food, to give us sustenance, to protect us from death. And you know what our part in it, in it is? Almost nothing. Yes, they had to go out and fight a battle with the Amalekites. I'll give you that. But whether they won or lost depended upon what? How many push-ups they had done the week before? How many miles they had run laps? How smart their strategy was? It depended on what? Moses holding up the staff and God's power giving them the victory. Even in that in which they worked the hardest, God so clearer gave a picture of his provision. So he has carried them. In your life, if you know Christ, you've seen the Lord provide. Sometimes after your deliverance from sin, you have seen him provide. And sometimes you look back now and see even before decisions you were making and you had no idea. Where will I go to school? Where should I get a job? Um, what should we do this weekend? And one small decision ended up being a divine appointment. Even the Lord allowing you and me to make decisions sometimes in foolishness are ones that he used in the end to bring us to brokenness, which resulted in his glorious purpose. You have stories like this, and you can look back and say, you know, I thought I was pretty smart, but when I look back now, it was just God carrying me every step of the way. I bore you on eagles' wings, he said. What does that mean, by the way? Um, such a cool picture in Scripture. Um, I want to read to you from Deuteronomy 32. You don't need to flip there, but the Lord is going to give this picture again. Uh, it'll be to the second generation. After the older generation dies in their foolishness, 
in the wilderness. Their children will grow up. And then before they go into the land, God will again, through Moses, give this picture a second time. You can just jot down the verses and go there later if you want. Deuteronomy 32, 9 through 11. Because the picture of an eagle and being carried by an eagle has so much to do with the eagle's power, the, the eagle's perseverance, his ability to fly over great distances, but also the care of its young. Here you go, Deuteronomy 32. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. Yahweh found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spreads out his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. How many different words there of God's care, protection, guiding? Do you see what the picture of the eagle is used here in Scripture to apply to how God's watched over his, his people? There is a point in time when the eagle decides, hey, eaglets, um, you got to fly. And so it stirs up its nest, it says. But even then, what does it do? It guards them. It catches them. It spreads its wings. It overshadows them with pinions. That's the picture here. And how I bore you on eagles' wings. Every step of the way, by those soft, fluffy feathers on the underside of the gigantic, powerful wings, he holds his people close. What a glorious encouragement that is. And it is not that their deliverance is because of what they have accomplished. It is what God has done first in awesome, shocking, amazing power, and then secondly, through tender, careful, intimate watch care over them every step of the way. Israel and many Times was largely passive. Go back and read chapter 15, where they stand on the shores, they see the dead bodies, and they break into song. They don't sing, we ran so fast, we got out so smart, right? They don't. Everything is Yahweh did, Yahweh did, Yahweh did, Yahweh did, Yahweh did, right? And so that's the picture here, a full provision. And so is our salvation, friend, if you are here today and you think you need to carry the weight of your salvation, if you think you can bear the required merit to stand before a holy God, let us tell you tenderly and gently, you're an idiot. You're a fool because you can't, and neither can I, and neither can none of us. And all we can do is stand before the Lord and say, let me not be a fool, but let me see that you carry, you provide, you gave your son and poured out your wrath on him so that I could be forgiven. Second work of deliverance is God's full provision. And then third, don't worry, we're going to go faster in the second part but of our passage today. Lastly is an intimate association. The wonderful work of the Lord's deliverance is a mighty visitation, a full provision, and then an intimate association. The end of verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Isn't that such a cool passage, just a cool phrase to linger over? I, I didn't come in chapter 3 to bring you out of slavery. Oh, no, that was not my purpose. My goal was to bring you to me. 
And so all the training he's done in chapters 16 and 17, he let them thirst so that they would learn not to depend upon themselves. He let them be hungry so that in their growling stomachs, they would come to him empty-handed and crowd and say, Lord God, we die apart from you. If, if you don't provide for us, what do we have? And then the powerful Amalekites. This is a, a ragtag group of ex-slaves marching through the wilderness with their women and their children and their, you know, their kneading bowls tied in sacks over their back and leading whatever animals they could take out, right? All of that against a marching army of Amalekites. And so what do they do? In each and every case, they have to come to him. I brought you to myself. I trained you through each and every one of these events, and now here you are at the mountain where I will meet with you. You know, it's going to be fun. We're going to see in chapter 19, the second half, and throughout, we're going to see. Um, Moses continually has to go up. God has to continually come down. God has decided, this is the place I will meet with you and bring you to myself. And then from that place, he's going to give him a new place. It's going to be a little, you know, traveling lunchbox known as the Ark of the Covenant. I don't mean to be blasphemous. Um, that they will forever be able to meet with him until the day that Jesus comes and he is the tabernacle and he is the meeting place. And so the Lord comes and he meets with them. He's training them to look to him. Friend, what is the Lord training you? What is he using to train you today to bring you to himself? I don't know about you. I I'm good at, at doing Exodus 2 and 3. Lord, free me from this slavery. I hate this stuff. He goes, it's not my purpose. Lord, feed me because I'm, I'm hungry. Lord, defend me against the enemy. It's not my purpose. I'm going to bring you to myself. And he will use those things in so long and in so far as he needs to grow us in that. And so there is then an intimate association that they are brought into. He removes them not only from slavery in Egypt, but even from the defilement there. And it's going to be progressive, removing them from defilement. They want to go back to Egypt many, many times. They want to go back to what they was safe and what they were used to, and they could provide for themselves. And he says, no, I'm still washing you and cleansing you, my redeemed people. And so it is for us. I want to go back to old patterns and old, way, old ways, especially things that worked and I think provided for me. And he says, no, I, I'm... I'm going to provide that for you now. Living in his daily provision, teaching us dependence. So let me, a uh, quick, quick quiz if you're following me. You don't have to shout out your answer. And you may, this isn't a fair quiz, I'll admit that up front, because you have to be able to read my mind. Um, but here's the question. Finish the sentence with one word from everything we've just said. Here's what God says to Israel at this point. I have set you free to be forever blank. Answer, mine. That's my salvation and yours. That's what the Lord says. Now you and I, at many times, get confused. And we think, knowing full well that Christ is our Savior, and that we have no other hope, having believed in him and trusted him, we then go about our merry way, and sometimes begin to think, well, God has set me free to be forever independent. Nope. 
to be forever in charge, without a need. I don't know, fill in the blank with whatever tempts you. I've set you free to be forever mine. Let me just take a moment and tease out a bit of some of the applications of that for you and me. Whatever, whatever role I fulfill, whatever place God has placed you, those words are, are powerful for learning how to walk with him in this work of deliverance. So, for example, as a husband, if you are Christ's, then you may not live unto yourself. You live unto God. And what a wonderful place that is to be. And as you, as a husband, given God-given authority and station and position and role and responsibility to serve and love a woman and shepherd her, you will not do it well unless you and I fully understand. God said, I have set you free to be forever mine. That's the starting point, to husband well. So what do we do? We place ourselves under God's authority, consciously, daily, joyfully, desperately, knowing that he will make you a blessing. And he will use you in the place he has placed you. As a parent, if you are Christ, you've been given a position and a role and authority, mother or father. You have a, a station. Then you have the privilege to find your identity in the one who has said, I delivered you to make you forever mine. And then as you seek him, then you lead your children as his servant and as his messenger and as his hands and feet. And sometimes that's tough love and it's confrontational and it's drawing lines, a boundary, and saying, huh, uh-uh, you stop there. But it's not based on selfishness. It's like, look, man, this is just my job before God, so you take it up with him. And other times you make choices to sacrifice and you say, you know what, if it was up to me, I would win this one. But I think the Lord is telling me to let him win this one. So, okay, my dear. All right. I'll just go pray, and you can deal with the Lord out there. And what a glorious place to be his hands and feet and his man or woman. Sinai was the near destination of the Exodus that God had promised. Canaan was the future destination. I think you heard it back in Exodus 3. Remember all those, all those zites, all those people, right, that they were going to go to. But the final destination of the Exodus is what? Yahweh himself. I have brought you to myself. That's the ultimate destination. Salvation is never only from. Salvation is always to. He brings us to himself. Well, then after recounting the wonderful work of his deliverance, Yahweh now, the Lord now, calls to the people for a response. He calls to them for their response. Oh, there it is. Pick up with me in verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
Then you, be, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel, he tells Moses. After his deliverance comes then the necessity of their response. So what he says is, look, continued enjoyment will come through personal response. Continued enjoyment of this salvation will come through personal response. You see, what we need to understand is when he says here in the middle of verse 5, and I'm just barely going to touch on it for the sake of time this morning, he gives them two stipulations. I have done three things. Then he says, now you are to do two things. And what are they? Listen to my voice and keep my covenant. You know what's super cool? In a couple of verses, they're going to go, yeah, totally. We are totally going to keep your covenant. You know what's a little bit funny about that? They really don't have any idea what it is they're supposed to keep yet. Because Moses is going to go back up the mountain a couple times, and he's going to get the whole covenant. But I don't think they're foolish, and I don't think they're rash. You tell me what you would do if God had brought you out of Egypt. You would rightly say, Lord, I have no idea what you're asking of me, but it don't matter. I will do whatever you say, because you have more than proven. You have more than demonstrated that you are worthy of all of my allegiance, all of my life. Here, Lord, here's a blank check as if you needed it. You can call for anything at any time. So listen to my voice and keep my covenant. Well, we're going to be talking a fair amount as we go through what it will mean, the details of the keeping of his covenant. The key I want you to notice right here is I want you to, as I mentioned before, look at the order. You see, he didn't come to Moses in chapter 3 and said, Moses, if my people will listen to my voice and keep my covenant perfectly, then I will deliver them. No. They're delivered. The physical picture of salvation for the nation has been accomplished. And it is to a delivered people that God will give his law. One commentator said it this way, the people are already freed by divine grace and power. They are not given the law to save themselves, but so they might continue to enjoy the salvation that they've already received. Or to say the same thing another way, the God who demands is the God who has already delivered. And that order is supremely important. Now as followers of Christ, we don't obey difficult commands out of some compulsion that we must perform to a certain level but rather out of incredible gratitude that he himself has already delivered and so lord what would i not be willing to do why would i not give you everything continued enjoyment through personal response and then finally we'll spend a few minutes here after the the deliverance and the call for response the lord gives him a sacred calling the Lord defines for them next. He defines for them a sacred calling. Look again at verse, end of verse 5, middle of 5. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak. So there are three callings that he is going to to define for them. Now, you can jot them all down and then we'll talk through each of them. That they are a special treasure, that they have a special role, and they will now have a special consecration. First, they are a special treasure. 
He says there in 5, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. That, that phrase is um, used several other times in the Old Testament. In Chronicles at one point, my special treasure, I think that's the best of all the different ways I've seen this talked about this week. I, I choose those words because those work best for me, partly because of what David does in 1 in Chronicles. The people are, are giving of their gifts to provide for uh, the temple, uh, okay? And they come forward and they bring all their stuff. And then it says... David brought forth a special gift out of his own special treasure. So what that means is David had a, a royal cache of stuff that was just his own precious stuff, just for his own use. It was a peculiar possession that no one else had access to, and he had full rights over. And that's the, the word that's used here. You are my own special treasure. Private, royal, exclusive property over which the king has total authority. That's what you are as a follower of Jesus Christ now. And that's a pretty sweet identity that he is forging. That is a sweet aspect of this sacred calling. And it's cool, he even puts that in a broader context. You shall be my, my special treasure, my own possession. And then he says, among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Why does he bother to say that? I thought you were talking about us. How come you're talking about everybody? Because I want to make the point by contrast. First, I just want you to know, okay, as I tell you I own you, Yahweh says to the nation, by the way, for what it's worth, I kind of own everybody. For all the earth is mine. I own the Egyptians. I own Pharaoh, and I own their magicians. I own everybody. He says, but out of all the nations. <laughs> you see, I own everybody, but, but I own you in a special way. Friends, it is not wrong to say that God has a special love for his children that he does not have for the rest of the world. Now, you might wrestle over that at some level, and that's fine. But you can't argue it away. God, in Psalm 103, 104, talks about all of his great works and how he cares for all he has made, and, and uh, he feeds rock badgers, right? And he, you know, he makes sure that the, you know, the eagle gets food, and it probably wasn't an eagle, but anyway, some bird. And he talks about how he brings water for the fields and for the plants. And God cares about everything and everyone, and he loves all he has made. John 3.16, but God has a peculiar love for his people. And it's right here in Exodus 19.5. You are my special possession out of all of the nations. I have called you. It's so sweet because in John chapter 17, as Jesus is praying, he's just about to be betrayed. Hours later. And, and what is most on his heart? What does he pray for? You can read the verses and count up how many does he pray for what things. The bulk of those verses will be to pray for his followers. In fact, at one point, to give you a picture of his special love and his special care, he even says, I do not pray for everyone, but I pray for them. He specifically uses these selective words. 
And then later in the same chapter, and he says, and I pray not only for these, but also for all who will believe in me through their witness. In other words, all believers. That is the special focus of the intercession of the Son of God hours before he is going to accomplish our salvation. What is most on his heart is his own children at that point. Is that because we're better? Deuteronomy 7, he tells Israel why he he chose Israel. For the Lord your God has set his love upon you out of all of the nations of the earth, not because you were the largest or the wisest or the best, but because he loved you. Can I collapse that first? Did you hear it? Yahweh loved you because dot, 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 he loved you. Because he chose you. And there are certain mysteries that are wrapped up in the divine persona that you and I are not meant to ever eternally solve. And I'm okay with that. But we are revealed, they're revealed to us so that we might revel in the reality that he has a special love for you as his child. And he says, you're my own treasured possession. He goes on the third part, first special treasure, then second, the special role. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. There's the special role. This is where the reformers rightly got the phrase that they didn't, they didn't create the concept, they just coined the term, or at least they popularized it. Maybe the term was already around. But the priesthood of all believers. Every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is now a priest of the Most High God. And and that's peculiarly so, I suppose, in the New Testament, where the Spirit of God comes to live in every believer. And we now become a temple and a vessel. And so we also become priests. But the idea was there, both individually and nationally, for the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant, you will be a kingdom of priests. So what would that mean? It means that the nation as a whole, and the people individually were to reveal God to the world. And so in the same way as the church of Jesus Christ, we individually, as we go about our jobs, you know, I'm, maybe I'm an x-ray technician, but my higher identity today is to be a revealer of the one true God. Wherever I go, or whatever your job might be. Also, we are to help mediate between man and God. In other words, as the priests came to present the gifts on behalf of men before God, how do we do our mediating role? How do we do our priestly role? Answer primarily through prayer, right? But also any other acts of service, maybe efforts that we prayerfully ask, God, would you identify with this person's need? Would you help use me as a tool to help bring this shortcoming to you so that you might uh, address it. And both of those roles are intrinsic to the, the main point of being a priest, and that is being needed. You, see, you, you can't be a kingdom of priests, or you can't individually be a priest unless you have access to God. For the nation of Israel, they already know what priests are. They already have the idea. But God is going to give the Levitical priesthood in the coming verses and chapters. And what will be specifically known about them? Oh, if you come to worship at the most holy place, some of you can come this far, some of you can come this far, and most of you can come this far, but then you got to stop. 
If you want to go any further, you've got to be a Levite. And then if you want to go any further, you'd have to be not just a Levite, but a priest. And if you want to go any further to go into the most holy place, you have to be what? The high priest. The priesthood is all about access to God. Now the Lord Jesus Christ has called us to himself. And he invites us to pray in his name. He says, I, I, I want you to abide in me. You don't, you don't just have access to me. You are supposed to live out of my life flowing through you. You're supposed to be connected to me. And so, just as God throughout the book of Exodus is making his name known to the nations, even in this role, he's making himself known to Israel by drawing them close and known through Israel to all the nations by them being a kingdom of priests. And then third and finally, their sacred calling includes that they are to be a holy nation. You see, the thing about the priesthood we'll find out is they had peculiar regulations that weren't incumbent upon the whole nation, right? Do you know that there were, uh, for a priest, priests are all male uh, in the Old Testament. For the priests, you know that there were certain women that they were not allowed to marry. Is that because she's not marriageable? Is that because that would be sinful? No, it was just a being set apart. And of course, you know, when they went in to the holy places to do their duties, they wore certain clothes, they had to do certain washings, they had to present certain sacrifices, they had to be cleansed in order to do their holy work. And so the same way it is with us, we have a special consecration. And, and the good news is, is it is both uh, complete and progressive. The Lord is continually, progressively setting us apart for him and cleansing us of sin and letting us come and giving us the gift of repentance so we can say, I have so blown it. And he says, I so know and I so love you. And I so can forgive that. And cleansing us and sanctifying us and making us more holy progressively. We should be experiencing that every day of our lives as followers of Christ, unless you don't sin that day, which if you don't, more power to you. But he also has done it ultimately, completely in Christ. I said just a moment ago that I, I, I wanted to make the point that their obedience, that the order was super important. You must listen and obey. You must keep, right? Um, all of these commands are given to a people already delivered. That's entirely true, and I'm not going to renege on anything I said. Uh, but there is a, a side piece of that that needs to be mentioned. How can we be saved? Answer. Well, follow-up question. Does the law have to be kept? Answer. Yes. It's just in Christ it's been kept by the only one who can keep it perfectly. And so in the same way here at this point when we are called now a holy nation, we are given a righteous standing before God so that even the Christians in Corinth who were just a train wreck of a first century church, Paul could write to them and call them saints. He could call them holy ones. And he can call you saints, me saint of the most high God. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You ever heard that phrase before? No, that's just some weird, archaic phrase buried somewhere in the Old Testament. 
unless you've read 1 Peter 2.9, where it is applied to you. It is applied to you. And so we are as a people, a priesthood, and we are as a people specially consecrated and also individually. You know what the great news about this is, guys? Tomorrow morning you're going to, actually, uh, I can't finish that sentence. You're not going to go back to work. Tomorrow you're going to barbecue. Tuesday morning you're going to go back to work or do something. And chances are fairly good you're not going to feel holy. And I'm not going to feel terribly sufficient. I'm not going to wake up and think, I am so consecrated. I'm not going to think, man, I'm a priest. But the great news is, those things are not based on your merit. This is what God calls his people. He says, look, I bought you. I adopted you. You're mine. And now this is your new calling. In fact, if you even try to not be it, you still can't help it. You might be a terrible priest, but you'll be a priest. I might be woefully unconsecrated, but I am still set apart. And at the end of the day, it is mine to return back to this identity that is forged. Here, just given as a glimpse for the nation of Israel, for us even much more so, more fully and more richly, it's ours in Christ. To be consecrated, to be sanctified, it's not even so much, this may be a last thought to take away, it's not even so much that we are to be better. Well, we should be better than everybody else. I mean, you can make that argument. But the idea behind the word is that we're to be different. And that's what's beautiful about the believer. Because every one of us is in a different place in our journey, in our sanctification with Christ. But every single one of us has been specially consecrated and set apart to God. And it's going to look different for you and for me and for your neighbor and for your spouse and for your kids. But that is super cool. In whatever place he has put us, we are to be different in this age. Well, I think you can see already everything I've said this morning is going to unroll as he goes through the law. He's going he's to claim authority over them. And he's going to say, do this. And he's not going to explain why. Why? Because I own you. That's why. Do this. Why? Because that's part of your role. Do this. Why, Lord? Because I'm protecting you. Because I'm sanctifying you. Because I'm making you useful. Understand, as we're going to walk through the law, I'll say this, I don't know how many times, Lord willing, in the coming weeks. Um, the law is a gift. The law is a gift. The nation of Israel received the law as a redeemed people who were wisely given a way to interact with their God. Quickly, the alternative is to be a pagan nation. And um, when you have drought, you guess at what you did wrong to make your God mad. And you probably start getting animals and crops and maybe even your own child. And you go sacrifice them. And you hope that God has mercy. That's what it is to be a pagan. The nation of Israel... They're like, what a joy it is to know our Lord. So here, he forges an identity, and he sets a destiny. Email me or uh, just stop by the office. So thank you again, Phil. Appreciate it.